Hello and welcome to No Character Limit. My name is Robert Thurk, and today we are going to hear part five of my book, God in the Frontier, The Impact of the 19th Century Burned Over District, and The Psychology of Faith. Just a few announcements before we get into it, as usual. First is that this is going to cover chapter six of my book, and that is about spiritualism. I'm really excited to share this part because it is maybe my favorite chapter of the book. But because chapter six is so long, I split it between part five and part six. So you're only going to be hearing about half of the chapter today, and you will hear the other half when part six is released. And of course, as always, if you have been enjoying my podcast and you appreciate the hard work that I have put into this, the only way I'm getting any income on this currently at the moment is by your donations. So if you would like to donate a few bucks for what you've been listening to and you appreciate it, with any donation, I give you the option to get a PDF copy of one of my books, which includes a lot of great images, some of which are really great in relationship to this chapter particularly, just because there's this idea called spirit photography that happened that really words just can't convey what these images show, and it's just brings a whole new dimension to be able to see the pictures associated with this podcast. So let's get started. This is going to be part five of God in the Frontier, and please enjoy the first half of chapter six. Thank you. Chapter 6, Distorted Reflections of Spiritualism, Part 1, The Crucible. The desire to want something so badly that one is willing to suspend reason, logic, and even common sense is part of the irrational nature of humanity. How many Christians held firm to the predictions put forth by William Miller? This Irrational fervor defined the Second Great Awakening, and it came forth in a variety of new styles across America. While for centuries Europe had been a continent full of Christian carrots and sticks regardless of location, America was a land untouched by the beliefs of the Old World. The further one traveled into the American interior, the more Christian life became malleable molding to the needs of the frontier, sometimes breaking from Christ altogether. Charles Grandison Finney was a product of this new perspective, having grown up in the wilderness of Oneida long before the Oneida community had established themselves. 
Even further west, the original boomtown of Rochester was one of the only places where the isolated peoples from across the New York frontier could find a city even beginning to resemble the ones from the East Coast. The tent revivals of Finney and Miller brought the fervor of tribalism rather than the sober and restrained traditions of Calvinism or Catholicism. Belief in the restrained and conservative Calvinist branch of Christianity just didn't mirror the unbridled frontier experience of these new Americans. The world around them was a natural and visceral place, and with the shackles of civilization loosened upon them, the people of the frontier began to see the world of life and death in refreshed ways. One such example took place in Hydesville, New York, today known as Arcadia or Newark, just south of Rochester in the middle of the burned-over district. In 1848, the same year that Noyes led his followers to establish the Oneida community, and four years after the great disappointment of Miller's failed prediction, a pair of sisters began reporting some unusual occurrences to their parents. The girls said they had been hearing strange and mysterious knockings within the walls of their own room around bedtime. Even more shocking was the fact that the sisters, 14-year-old Maggie Fox and 11-year-old Kate Fox, had found that they could communicate with whatever was making these bizarre knockings. Bringing their parents to their room to witness such an outrageous claim, Maggie would give orders to the unknown presence, to count to five or fifteen or even to someone's age, and each time the mysterious knocker complied with accuracy. Mr. and Mrs. Fox, astounded, rushed out and got the neighbors to witness this supernatural event, and now with all of the neighbors crammed into the girl's room, they had all witnessed it for themselves and hastily concluded that a spirit had the ability to communicate with the young Fox sisters. Unusually, the parents settled on this conclusion rather than suspect that there was any mischief by the hands of their daughters. A 19th century version of Arthur Miller's The Crucible quickly followed. After determining that it must be a spirit, the Fox family subsequently moved out of the house and rumors began to circulate. There came allegations that the spirit was a peddler, a traveling salesman that had traveled into the town selling his wares five years earlier, and that the previous owner of the fox home had allegedly murdered the peddler after staying overnight in the house. Attempts were made to find the body in the basement, but only a bone fragment with some hair was found, its origin unknown. As for Maggie and Kate, they were sent up to Rochester to live with their older sister, Leah Fox. Chapter 6, Part 2, Going Viral in the 19th Century. 
Rather than the story ending with the Fox sisters being sent to Rochester, the Second Great Awakening ensured that this was only the beginning. Here was an anomaly worthy of the movement's unchecked religious zeal that was sweeping the nation. Word of the Fox sisters' ability to communicate beyond the natural world followed them, and a prominent Rochester couple, Isaac and Amy Post, invited the spirit communing sisters to their place to judge for themselves. The Posts were Hicksite Quakers, a division of Orthodox Quakerism, which focused less on doctrine and more on living close to Jesus through one's actions. Thus, the Posts dedicated their time to helping those without a voice as their way to serve Jesus. They fought to abolish slavery and for women's rights, early supporters of the types of ideals promoted by Finney and that America still prides itself on today. Isaac and Amy Post were skeptical when the three Fox sisters entered their home, but by the time they left, the Posts had been convinced of their ability to communicate with another realm. They witnessed hearing thumps under the floor when Maggie and Kate spoke to the spirit. Even more, this confirmed that they could communicate with spirits in multiple locations, not just back in their home in Hydesville. But the true shock came when it was realized that Leah, the oldest sister not present when the whole mystery began, was suddenly able to communicate with the Post's recently deceased daughter. Now wholly persuaded, the Post's rented the largest hall in Rochester, where 400 people showed up to see the Fox sisters communicate with the spirit realm. The girls were personally checked for any type of trickery by Amy Post after the performance concluded, and nothing was found upon their body that indicated any tricks at all. Their Rochester performance was an instant success and caused their popularity to soar. The Poughkeepsie Seer, a self-proclaimed clairvoyant by the name of Andrew Jackson Davis, was next to be drawn in by the Fox sisters' abilities and sent for them to visit his home in New York City. Davis was fascinated by the previous century's work on understanding the spirit realm. He had spent his time learning about the magnetic fluid that was in everyone that could be controlled under just the right circumstances, at least according to the works of Franz Anton Mesmer, who famously mesmerized his subjects with a wave of the hand. Davis became the Poughkeepsie Seer when he would go into a mesmeric trance and communicate with the spirit world, going as far as using a scribe to write down the information he attained during these sessions that would later become books, a concept that became popular with others who claimed divine knowledge as well. Even before Davis had heard of the Fox sisters, he had earned the attention of author Edgar Allan Poe, who both attended his lectures and read his works. Davis made claims that he had visited heaven and saw people from every walk of life across earth within it, and that it was not merely populated with just Christians. 
This both appalled and gave hope to those who heard his claims, and slowly he began to gain notoriety right around the same time the Fox sisters had put on their Rochester show. Only when the seer of Poughkeepsie's mesmeric trances and the Fox sisters' spirit wrappings, as they began to be called, came together did their fame become international, sowing the seeds for a new religion known as spiritualism. While the sisters would hold seances for groups as large as 30 at a time throughout the day, Davis went on to continue to write, lecture, and speak about the revelations of spiritualism, gathering ever larger followings. After their stay in New York, the Fox sisters went their separate ways, with Leah remaining in New York to give seances while Maggie and Kate took their spirit rapping show on tour to the largest cities across the United States. After a while, even Maggie and Kate separated. Kate continued to hold seances for prominent individuals both in America and abroad due to her prestigious reputation. One of her biggest clients was a wealthy banker by the name of Charles Livermore, to whom she gave 388 seances to, where she would communicate with his deceased wife. As these seances continued, they became more complex, with the knockings eventually giving way to what was called automatic writings, where Livermore's wife would magically write to Livermore on paper in front of their eyes. While these writings materialized before the eyes of Livermore and others who were in attendance, Kate's hands were held by someone else, and it was agreed all around that the handwriting matched that of Livermore's wife. There was even a special guest appearance by none other than the Benjamin Franklin, who also automatically wrote Livermore as well. These humble beginnings sprang forth the spiritualist movement allowing for others with mediumship abilities to openly proclaim that they too, just like the Fox sisters, had a special connection to this alleged spirit world, and they were embraced by the throng of followers and believers of spiritualism, many of whom were famous both then and today. British physicist Sir Oliver Lodge, integral to the invention of the radio, could understandably comprehend that right where we stand, a hidden universe awaits just beyond the veil. Sir William Crookes, another British physicist and chemist famed for the discovery of the element thallium, studied spectroscopy, and helped invent the vacuum tube, found himself impressed by the medium Florence Cook and became a devout spiritualist. Even the creator of the cool-headed and clever detective Sherlock Holmes, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, asserted his allegiance to spiritualism in spite of reasonable and logical criticism against it. Spiritualism was not strictly bound by the esoteric debates in the vast arena of Christian denominations because spiritualists believed in a direct connection to the afterlife from the life here and now. Suddenly, the Oneida community had members who claimed that they could communicate with the now-deceased John Humphrey Noyes. 
even the vast array of denominations in Christianity had largely acknowledged that crossover from heaven, the afterlife, and even spirits had always existed, making spiritualism not quite as heretical as it might first appear. Many devout Christians looked towards spiritualist mediums for closure or answers on the loss of loved ones as the Post did with their daughter through the Fox Sisters back in Rochester. In a way, the Fox Sisters were able to legitimize mediumship and be able to bring forth spiritualism as a united religion that was international in nature, which made what happened next all the more shocking. Chapter 6 Part 3 The Reveal The international sensation of the Fox sisters became all the more shocking then when, in 1888, Maggie Fox, now in her mid-fifties, stunned the world by declaring that all of the spiritual knockings were faked by her and her sisters from the start. Although eventually separating from each other to practice spiritualism individually, Kate and Maggie remained close. Maggie had fallen in love and married a man who never believed in her spiritualist claims and encouraged Maggie to convert to Catholicism, which she ultimately did in honor of his premature death. Kate eventually married a spiritualist, had two children, and subsequently lost her husband as well. Some have argued that the stresses of their fame and their demand for performance drove them both to alcoholism. Their older sister, Leah, who also continued to make her income from her reputation as a medium, would criticize Kate for overdrinking and not taking care of her children. Livid at her older sister and protective of her younger one, Maggie reached out to the New York world and gave an exclusive interview on how the spirit wrappings had been faked all along. The paper paid $1,500 for the interview, or roughly $40,000 today, and it was followed by a demonstration of how it would be done at the New York Academy of Music. Kate was even in attendance to show support for her sister's big reveal. So, the odd demonstration that followed, divulging the Fox sisters' deception, left the audience bewildered. First, Maggie proclaimed that the initial wrappings that had begun in their Hydesville home was nothing more than an apple tied to a string that they would pull and drop. It was initially done as an April Fool's Day prank, as it was to be the following day, yet the excitement from the adults in the room caused the girls to not reveal their prank. Maggie proclaimed that as time went on, they learned to manipulate their toes, possibly cracking their knuckles or thwacking it against something to create the famed wrappings. She said that wealthy people would come to her for her seances and she would do the toe-cracking trick, allowing the imagination of the guests to do the rest. With a packed audience and placing her foot on a wooden stool for all to see, 
The New York Herald reported what happened next. Quote, There stood a black-robed, sharp-faced widow working her big toe and solemnly declaring that it was in this way that she created excitement that has driven so many persons to suicide or insanity. One moment, it was ludicrous. The next, it was weird. End quote. Three doctors verified her toes were making the sounds. She finished the appearance by saying that their older sister Leah had been in on the deception the entire time and exploited Maggie and Kate for money. She then thanked God for the strength to expose spiritualism for what it was and left the stage. The Herald's quote, one moment it was ludicrous and the next it was weird, is quite telling. Here was a movement built upon the backs of three sisters who claimed that there was truly a spirit realm, and that, with the right person, it could be contacted and communicated with. It was the promise of a metaphysical experience, in person and on demand, that had convinced millions of the movement's merit. Ever since nearly all spiritualists point to March 31, 1848 as the origin of the spiritualist movement, the day the Fox sisters first demonstrated their abilities to their parents. Well-known people attended their events, famous people were members, and wealthy people paid for private sessions. And yet, when the curtain was pulled away, all of that disappeared, and what was left was a black-robed, sharp-faced widow working her big toe. To take Maggie at face value in that moment, the entire spirit realm instantly evaporated in a puff of mystified astonishment. Then, instantly, a person would have to think about the implications of what that meant. How not just the Fox sisters, but all mediums and clairvoyants must be a scam with an equally strange, simple, and disturbing deception lying behind each one. To imagine millions of people across America subjecting themselves to the equivalent of the working of a big toe would certainly lead one to conclude that this was, indeed, weird. If all of this was true, then the magic instantly vanished. The demonstration was reported in the press as a death blow to the spiritualist movement. Just as in the crucible, the trickery of children were at the root of the deception of adults. But instead of deceiving merely a town, it was the world that was fooled. This realization left a dark, gnarled knot of deceit in place where fertile hope once dwelled. In many ways, parallels can be drawn between the Millerites' great disappointment of 1844 and the spiritualist situation upon Maggie's 1888 reveal. Modern spiritualists unequivocally point to their origin as the Fox sisters in the same way that Millerites and their subsequent denominations point to William Miller as theirs. Both groups were new and grew quickly, amassing a vast following. Both proclaimed that they knew how to bridge the divide between the great beyond and the physical world without question. Both 
are left with these moments where what was desperately believed to be true turns to ashes, leaving them struggling with how to react to something so unexpected and unwarranted for a people of pure faith. The idea that William Miller might not have been right, or that the Fox sisters were frauds, despite being the logical conclusions, was essentially something that couldn't be registered by believers. Undoubtedly, loss aversion and the sunk cost fallacy set in for many in both movements, as there was ample fuel for denial for anyone who wished to double down. After all, was the odd performance by Maggie and her toe even convincing? To the Herald, it was only described as ludicrous and weird. Did this strange action by Maggie even resemble the wrappings that they were famous for? Could Maggie have just taken the money and made up a lie? Then, what about the fact that the sisters were able to do other things, such as Kate's ability to have automatic writing appear magically upon paper, or how Leah knew about the Post's daughter back in Rochester? Then, of course, there was also the motivation of money. What wouldn't someone do for the equivalent of $40,000 today? Then there was the petty rivalry between the sisters, and the whole ordeal could have been done solely out of spite. A caustic attempt by Maggie to forever close the door on the spirit realm in petty revenge on Leah. Even more, Maggie and Kate's reputation for drinking made them as unreliable as the next drunk during a time when the temperance movement was in full swing. And regardless of what Maggie said, weren't there countless other mediums, some of whom have been verified by scientific scrutiny, out there disproving Maggie's implication that the movement was built on a lie? Kate Fox herself was subjected to the physicist Sir William Crookes and was not denounced. Then there is the fact that not even a year went by before Maggie retracted all of her statements against spiritualism from the scandalous 1888 event, claiming the whole New York Reveal performance to be the actual lie. Even though spiritualists would never again show Maggie the same reverence and respect, the fact that she renounced her denunciations was more evidence that spiritualism was more real than ever. Between 1890 and 1893, all three of the Fox sisters died, but the mystery of the truth only deepened. In 1904, Children playing in their now-abandoned Hydesville home had discovered a skeleton between the ground and the walls of the home. A doctor declared that the bones were at least 50 years old, giving credence to the murdered peddler story that was told at the time of the initial wrappings. There were plenty of reasons to doubt the validity of Maggie's ousting of spiritualism, and so the movement continued to grow, the alleged death blow reported by the press never connected. Chapter 6, Part 4, Executive Privilege Regardless of the truth of the Fox sisters' abilities, 
Deception within spiritualism is very real. This is because anyone can claim they're in communication with a spirit that no one else in the room can see, an uncomfortable fact that spiritualists openly admit. Even Maggie, after recanting her denouncement of spiritualism, later returned to spiritualist gatherings in disguise and exposed further tricks used by mediums, akin to a magician revealing a trick to the audience. But spiritualists will also claim that just because there is deception in spiritualism, it doesn't detract from the truth that there are those who truly have the gift. One of the most famous spiritualists at the movement's height was Cora L. V. Scott, who created the largest spiritualist church in Chicago. She originally gained fame by performing minor surgery as a child, all while being in a spiritualist trance. She performed these surgeries for years under the direction of a German physician who would put her into these trances. When Cora and the physician split, she continued to gain popularity through spiritualism on her own. And even though she had been married several times over, something that could ruin a woman for life in the 19th century, she was a female leader in an era where leaders were dominated by men. She was regarded for being able to speak eloquently about complex topics despite having only a grade school education. When Cora spoke on the topic of the abolition of slavery, it drew attendees such as Abraham Lincoln himself. It is well documented that spiritualism had not only impacted the life of America's most popular president, but that spiritualists were even invited into the White House, a trend that continued on and off for decades to come. The Civil War brought a loss of life that was unprecedented in the young nation and caused people to seek connections with lost loved ones more than ever. The ranks of spiritualism swelled from 2 million in the mid-1850s to over 8 million followers by the 1880s. In 1862, when Abraham and Mary Todd Lincoln lost their 11-year-old son William to typhoid fever, Mary's friend and seamstress recommended a seance to try and reach him. Mrs. Lincoln reached out to several spiritualist mediums, including one by the name of Nettie Colburn Maynard. Maynard later wrote a book about her White House seances called Was Abraham Lincoln a Spiritualist? In it, she described a seance she gave in which Abraham Lincoln was in attendance and praised her afterwards for doing God's work. Mary Todd Lincoln reached out to spiritualists on multiple occasions to speak to her lost sons through various mediums, and she wasn't alone. Prominent Americans, such as the interestingly named First Commissioner of Agriculture, Isaac Newton, Representative and Major General Daniel Sickles, who incidentally gained notoriety by being the first person to claim temporary insanity for killing his wife's lover, and the wife of the New York Herald's James Gordon Bennett, were all spiritualists. After Nettie Colburn Maynard had seen Mary Todd Lincoln several times over the death of her children, Maynard was given a position in the Department of Agriculture under control of Isaac Newton. 
When Mrs. Lincoln's younger brother died, a Confederate soldier in the Civil War, she invited her sister over to grieve. One night, Mrs. Lincoln came to her sister, claiming she had seen the spirits of both her children and brother happily together. Notably, though, directly after, Mrs. Lincoln revealed to her sister how much she hated the thought of young William being alone, but felt this vision with her brother and children helped ease her pain. Claims that President Lincoln was a spiritualist have been made, mostly by spiritualists. While this has been deemed unlikely by historians, Lincoln did have a unique set of views on the afterlife and has even claimed to have had prophetic visions. Lincoln's religious beliefs did not reflect the zeitgeist of the Second Great Awakening and had his own unique quirks. He was a logical and methodical man who didn't ascribe to any denomination but did support the concept of predestination promoted by Calvinists. This became most recognized when, on the morning of his assassination at a cabinet meeting attended by General Grant, Secretary of State Seward, Secretary of War Stanton, and Secretary of Navy Wells, where he relayed a dream that he had the previous night. A variety of versions of Lincoln's dream had come out, but the basic details remained the same. Lincoln dreamt he was at sea, heading into the unknown on a boat. Lincoln claimed he had this dream on multiple occasions, directly before a significant event, having it once before the famed Battle of Bull Run. Later that same evening, after he revealed this dream to his cabinet, he was assassinated, and it's been claimed that the first coherent words from Mary Todd Lincoln's mouth was the proclamation that Lincoln foresaw his own death. As the cabinet members began to share what the president had uncannily laid out the morning of his assassination, spiritualists began to claim that the vision was likely due to Lincoln's clairvoyance. Lincoln allegedly had other prophetic dreams that he would believe as signs or omens. He had visions in the mirror where he saw himself as a double person, half of him healthful and the other half deathly pale. Mary Todd Lincoln and spiritualists ever since had attempted to interpret the meaning of these strange Lincoln visions. Lincoln's lack of commitment to any denomination and his unusual prophetic dreams made him a perfect candidate for spiritualism. But aside from attending a couple of speeches and seances of a trend that was sweeping the nation, he made no indication that he ever supported the movement. Mary Todd Lincoln, on the other hand, deeply supported the movement, but even she might have had her doubts. Nettie Colburn Maynard recounted once when Mary hid a man behind a nearby curtain and asked Maynard to identify him. But before she could, Abraham Lincoln entered the room and Colburn was suddenly overtaken by a spirit, conveniently never completing the challenge. Whether Mrs. Lincoln had her doubts, or she was just truly probing the depths of spiritualism, isn't known. But her belief in the movement continued, even after her husband's untimely death.
Chapter 6, Part 5, Spiritualist Stardom Aside from the Fox sisters, perhaps no spiritualist medium might have had the fame of Florence Cook, who rose to prominence because she could repeatedly bring forth a physical manifestation of a spirit named Katie King. For a fee reasonable for performing such a feat, a small group of people could pay to witness a true spirit manifestation for themselves. Initially, Katie King only appeared as a face through a hole directly above a closed cabinet where 14-year-old Florence was allegedly bound inside. But as her popularity grew, the spirit, Katie King, came out and interacted with guests, all while Florence remained tied up and out of sight inside of her cabinet. Katie King was covered in a sheer garment that was called ectoplasm, which prevented seeing the spirit in full form. The ectoplasm fabric, and it was a fabric, conveniently made it difficult to see Katie's face and body clearly, similar to how a wedding veil obscures a face of a bride. Yet, the spirit of Katie King and the medium, Florence Cook, did share an uncanny resemblance. As Florence grew older, Katie began to interact with guests in a more flirtatious and sometimes even sexual manner that could even result in missing clothes before disappearing back into the cabinet above Florence. And after a suspicious amount of time, say, just enough to take off some ectoplasm, Florence would re-emerge from the cabinet, exhausted and nonplussed about what had just occurred, having had to focus all of her energy on the apparition of Katie. Once, a guest even grabbed at Katie King, asserting that the spirit was Florence Cook. But other guests separated them immediately, and the man was chastised for behaving most unseemly, as if there were the same societal expectations of respect for spirits as there were for women. And while the man was being scolded, Katie King disappeared back into her cabinet, and Florence Cook suddenly reemerged in her stead, disappointed to share the news that Katie was gone for the remainder of the day. To help assure others that she was a credible medium, Florence, like Kate Fox, subjected herself to the scruples of physicist Sir William Crookes. The physicist used his reputation as a physicist to assert that Katie King was indeed a genuine spirit from the spirit world, and that Florence Cook truly could conjure her into existence. Even more, Crooks took multiple photographs of Katie King to prove her existence as real. And in my book version of God in the Frontier, I've shared some of these photographs. So, a veiled woman that actually looked a lot like Florence appeared in Crooks's photographs. Crooks thought about this and took pictures of Katie King and Florence Cook side by side. But 
when you look at these photos, they don't actually show the faces of the woman and the spirit together. Katie stands facing the camera while a lump of clothing dangling from a chair off camera is supposed to be taken for Florence. The fact that Florence was barely 18 at the time of Crooks' fascination with her has led many to presume that Crooks and Cook were having an affair, even as Crooks' wife attended Cook's seances. Another theory is that Cook and Crooks were both attempting to gain fame and fortune together using spiritualism. With doubts about Cook's genuine abilities mounting, during one of her sessions, Katie King announced that she was no longer going to appear through Florence, and even went to the cabinet and woke Florence to tell her the news. The two had a heart-wrenching goodbye, and as Florence threw herself into a fit of sadness, Katie disappeared forever. It is true that in this final instance, both Florence Cook and Katie King were witnessed at the same time interacting together by multiple spectators. But hiring a second woman to play the farewell of Katie was not an unheard of trick used by less reputable mediums. This was particularly noteworthy because prior to this final session, Florence could not wake up and interact with her spirit, as usually she would become exhausted by giving all of her energy to manifesting Katie King. As news of Florence Cook's last manifestation of King spread, two separate mediums suddenly proclaimed that Katie King had now been appearing through them. Just as Florence originally got the idea by listening to other mediums who had used Katie King as a messenger before her. The spirit of Katie King passed through various mediums in a sort of similar way to the name Dread Pirate Roberts passed between pirate captains in the famous Rob Reiner film The Princess Bride. Florence was only 19 when she gave up her ability to contact Katie. Yet, like Maggie Fox, Florence returned to being a spiritual medium shortly after, this time physically manifesting a spirit by the name of Marie. The spirit Marie appeared in a similar manner as Katie King did, but this spirit was even more flirtatious. Once again, a man grabbed Marie and this time definitively ousted her as Florence Cook, wearing nothing more than underwear. This shocking reveal ruined Cook's reputation as a medium for good, and Sir William Crooks was confounded by the resulting criticism he received for his scientific work with Florence Cook which now appeared to have been driven by wholly unscientific measures. Chapter 6, Part 6, Elementary Investigations 
Sir Arthur Conan Doyle called the ousting of Florence Cook the most damaging exposure of spiritualism of all time. Conan Doyle was both a believer and an authority on spiritualism, along with Sir William Crookes and Sir Oliver Lodge, all of whom were members of an organization called the Society for Psychical Research in Great Britain. The Society originated in 1882 with the expressed purpose of being, quote, the first society to conduct organized scholarly research into human experiences that challenge contemporary scientific models, end quote. And they claim to do this without prejudice or prepossession of any kind. The society, which still exists today, drew in people with a wide range of beliefs that included both skeptics and spiritualists alike. Like a 19th century X-Files or Scooby-Doo, they chose to investigate the world between the hard science and the truly unknown, focusing on topics such as hypnotism, haunted houses, apparitions, mediumship, seances, and they even coined the term telepathy in order to research it. Finally, spiritualists thought they had a place that would treat them with both the respect and authority that they deserved. But it soon became apparent that the Society for Psychical Research was not merely going to be a spiritualist cheerleading squad. There were those who genuinely wanted to know the truth and weren't going to blindly support spiritualism if the evidence wasn't there. This was perhaps best exemplified by Eleanor Mildred Sidgwick. Sidgwick was not only the wife to the first president of the society, but became the twelfth president herself between 1908 and 1909. She was a well-respected physicist that became principal of Newnham College of Cambridge University in 1892. She received honorary degrees from multiple high-level universities, and she even served on the Royal Commission of Secondary Education. She even worked with John William Strutt, the Nobel Peace Prize winner in physics. Like Cora L.V. Scott, Sidgwick was successful in an era when women were regularly discounted as second-class citizens. She was a feminist who advocated for more women in higher education and found a natural ally in spiritualism around the turn of the 20th century. Spiritualism had a strong association with feminism. Anne Broad of the Harvard Divinity School and author of the book Radical Spirits, Spiritualism and Women's Rights in the 19th Century America stated that not all feminists were spiritualists, but all spiritualists were feminists. With many spiritualist mediums being women, and their origin coming from the Fox sisters, it wasn't surprising that spiritualists supported and encouraged the power of women. But 
What makes Sidgwick stand apart was that she wasn't going to accept spiritualism at face value merely because she shared a view with the community of empowering women. Early on, the Society of Psychical Research chose to focus on William Eglinton, a spiritualist medium who claims to be able to materialize a spirit known as Abdullah, in the same way that Florence Cook suddenly could materialize Katie King. Abdullah had a long white robe, a turban, and a large beard that hid his face. Eglinton also claimed that he had the ability to conjure spirits to do slate writing, a famous technique that was also used by Kate Fox of the original Fox Sisters. The idea was that spirits would write on these slates with a piece of chalk, typically under a table or out of sight of the viewer, while the medium interacted with the guest, and then suddenly the medium would pull out the slate and expose the otherworldly message. Sidgwick was one of several in the society to write multiple papers that proved Eglinton's slate writing and spirit Abdullah as fraudulent, nullifying his career as a medium. This denouncement by the Society of Psychical Research caused spiritualist Stanton Moses, well known for his own spirit-wrapping seances, to resign from the Society, despite being an early vice president of it. He never allowed the Society to study his own sessions, but one researcher concluded that it was likely that Moses' seances were likely produced by the medium's own hands. For her part, Sidgwick continued to find mounting evidence that many supernatural phenomena were likely staged, including phantasms of the dead, or what we would call ghosts, theosophy, or the ability to transport people and objects supernormally across distances, and premonitions. Sidgwick wrote earnestly and seriously on all these topics and was often scorned by believers, never more so than when she logically denounced spiritualism in her 1896 paper, The Physical Phenomena of Spiritualism. Quote, it is not because I disbelieve in the physical phenomenon of spiritualism, but because I at present think it is more probable than not that such things occasionally occur that I am interested in estimating the evidence for them. I feel bound, however, to admit that by far the larger part of the testimony put forward as affording solid ground for a belief in them, which I have been able to examine, is of such a nature as to justify the contempt with which scientific men generally regard it. If what I have written should contribute, in however small a degree, to the improvement of the evidence on this subject in the future, I shall feel that it has not been written in vain. End quote. For Eleanor Sidgwick, it was a hard truth to swallow. Elsewhere in her paper, she openly admits she believes in spiritualism because she is excited by the idea that this otherworldly connection could exist, and thus studying this phenomenon is of critical importance. But the evidence reveals that there is no proof to support spiritualism, and her writing conveys how much it pains her to admit it. In the end, her loyalty lay with facts, 
over faith. Another topic the Society for Psychical Research chose to investigate was that of spirit photography. Spirit photography was different from the types of photographs that Crooks took of Florence Cook and Katie King or that William Eglinton took with Abdullah. There is no doubt in the photographs of Katie King and Abdullah that someone is standing there in the photograph and that whoever it is is as solid as a person, regardless of how much ectoplasm they might be wearing. Spirit photography was much more ethereal and often featured ghostly forms mingling in some strange and supernatural way with living people in the photograph. And one of the pioneers of this otherworldly photography was a Massachusetts man named William Mumler in the early 1860s. When Mumler discovered his ability to photograph the spirit world, it quickly escalated into a successful and profitable venture. Most investigators found that they could not disprove the genuine nature of the photographs and were often convinced of their legitimacy. Mumler gained even more notoriety from these investigative endorsements, and throughout the 1860s, he opened his ghostly photography up for mail orders for the price of $7.50 per photograph. As the Civil War ended, mourning family members wishing to see their lost loved ones provided Mumler with a description of them and the $7.50, and he would return their spirit photograph that today might more accurately be described as a double exposure. Eventually, people began to identify some of these spirits, not as deceased relatives, but as living people who had once been photographed by Mumler years earlier during his less famed career as a normal photographer. As the skepticism grew, Mumler moved from Boston to New York, but even this did not help him escape formal accusations of fraud and larceny. The following world-renowned trial that occurred was just one of many that brought the fraudulence of spiritualism to light. But Mumler was exonerated as his photographs couldn't be replicated by the prosecution to prove them to be fake. The international attention Mumler received from the trial brought Mumler to retirement. But he could not help resist one final famous spiritualist client. To this day, Mumler's most famous spirit photograph is of Mary Todd Lincoln in 1869, and the ghost of Abraham Lincoln standing behind her, arms on her shoulders, offering her solace and comfort. If you want to see some of Mumler's photographs, I've included them into my written copy of God in the Frontier. Half a century after Mumler, spirit photography was more popular than ever, as the end of World War I and the Spanish flu left many having lost someone they cared for. Spiritualism flourished in the aftermath of the Great War, as people clamored for a last glimpse of those they held the dearest. Spirit photography promised a gossamer visage of a loved one, which was just enough to comfort the living in the same way the ghost of Abraham Lincoln had for Mary Todd Lincoln. 
No one was better at spirit photography in this new era than that of William Hope, the genuine article when it came to spirit photos. Hope had established a group of six professional spirit photographers in Great Britain, known as the Crew Circle. Hope's images bore ghastly figures that were only partially captured surrounding the living participants in the photos. Unlike today, where digital photo manipulation and techniques such as double exposures can be done even by amateurs, photographic evidence during the late 19th and early 20th century was considered proof positive of something's legitimacy. Manipulation of a photograph was not realistic in the eyes of many, although any photographer of the time saw darkroom mistakes that bore eerie similarities to the ethereal spirit photography done by Hope and his crew circle. The Society for Psychical Research chose to focus on Hope's spirit photography to determine whether this ability to capture spirits in pictures was truly genuine. The member who decided to investigate William Hope and his crew circle was a little-known archaeological enthusiast by the name of Harry Price, who gained some notoriety after having allegedly found a silver ingot from Roman times. Price had a strong interest in magic, and even became what he called an expert amateur conjurer. Equipped with some understanding on the art of deception, Harry Price went to William Hope in order to get his own photo taken with a spirit. Hope gladly complied, but as he did, Price both marked Hope's original plates and provided Hope with additional plates with specific markings on them. None of the spirit photographs that Hope ultimately produced for Price had either the markings Price etched into the original plates or those of the plates given to Hope by Price. Harry Price's subsequent outing of Hope in a paper for the Society of Psychical Research caused the greatest backlash against the Society yet. Arthur Conan Doyle, a member of the Society of Psychical Research, led a mass resignation of 84 members because of Price's denunciation of Hope. Conan Doyle and the rest left the Society claiming that the Society demanded an impossible amount of evidence and that they were actively against spiritualism. Conan Doyle called Price's criticism of William Hope sewage and wrote a book entitled The Case for Spirit Photography in 1922, calling Hope's spirit photography a remarkable gift. As for Harry Price, the exposure of William Hope was his breakout moment, and he went on to become a major investigator for the Society of Psychical Research. Price did not only expose frauds, but also went as far as to endorse mediums who he thought were genuine. Today, Price is not most famous for his exposure of Hope's spirit photography, but instead for his investigations into the Borley Rectory in England during the late 1930s, in which he claimed the site was unequivocally haunted in a book he wrote after living there for a year. 
This brought three members of the Society for Psychical Research to see the Borley Rectory for themselves, and they determined that this time it was Harry Price who was the fraudulent actor, at least in part, and that Price was creating some of the phenomena there himself. But it was Conan Doyle who got caught up in a different photography-related fraud entirely on his own, either due to ironic naivete or malfeasance. In 1920, photographs started to appear from Yorkshire, England of two girls posing with some fairies. He got a hold of the originals and declared, without any evidence, that the photographs depicting the fairies were undoctored proof of their existence. Suddenly, Arthur Conan Doyle became a fairy expert, examining findings that were mailed to him from all over the world. Despite the incoming flood of fairy mail, Conan Doyle declared that none could compare to the original photographs, which came to be known as the Cottingley Fairies. In the following decades, the Cottingley fairies were often cited as a strange but potentially true case in much the same category as UFOs or ghosts. Much later, in 1980, the girls in the photograph, now in their old age, admitted that the Cottingley fairies were faked. They claimed they held it a secret for this long because they didn't want to get in trouble or ruin the reputation of Conan Doyle, who went to his grave believing he had discovered verifiable proof of fairies. In Sherlock Holmes, Conan Doyle created the fictional archetype of logic, cunning, and reason, who would not be swayed by anything less than the facts. But in the case of the Cottingley fairies and spiritualism, Conan Doyle was a romantic who let his own desires and emotions cloud the evidence that was apparent before him. He became the most powerful figure in a real-life hunt for fictional creatures of the imagination. Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, a proud spiritualist, was a man of inversion who looked for facts in the world of fiction and for fiction in the world of facts. The irony of this tragedy can be summarized best by Conan Doyle's own hand, with words he once put in the mouth of Sherlock Holmes. Quote, How often have I said that when you have excluded the impossible, whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. End quote. What is it about spiritualism that has drawn in countless people throughout history, despite the fraud and disillusionment surrounding it? For many, the answer is simple and clear. They believe spiritualism to be real and that the dead can be contacted through the skills of a medium. And many spiritualists hold this belief while simultaneously belonging to a specific religion or church. How many people have visited a psychic, medium, or clairvoyant and came out of the experience feeling that they knew things about them that no one else could? Even the ancients relied on priests and sibyls to see into another realm. 
Throughout all cultures, roles have been assigned for those people who are believed to be in communication with the spirit world beyond what most people can see. To spiritualists, it does not matter if people denounce their beliefs due to a few frauds, because history has shown that it can be done and has been done for millennia, albeit under different names. Spiritualism even has given rise more recently to a separate philosophy called Spiritism, most popular in Brazil, that looks closer at the relationship between the spirit and the living world. But a common theme starts to develop from the stories surrounding the birth of Spiritualism. Many of the most well-known adherents to Spiritualism seem to struggle with the loss of a loved one. For the Fox sisters, it was Mr. and Mrs. Post from Rochester, who had recently lost a daughter. Leah Fox either pretended she was communicating with their dead daughter, or she really did. Later on, it was a wealthy banker, Charles Livermore, which brought Kate Fox nearly 400 well-paid seances so that he could communicate with his dead wife. After Kate had wrapped up the final session, Livermore was so grateful for her work that he paid for a trip to England for her. Kate either pretended that she was in communication with Livermore's wife and also Benjamin Franklin, or she really did. The famous physicist Sir Oliver Lodge believed that he was speaking to his dead son through a medium. This medium either pretended to be in communication with Oliver Lodge's son's spirit, or she really was. Even Mary Todd Lincoln reached out to mediums like Nettie Colburn Maynard and spirit photographer William Mumler to find peace with the grief of her lost children, brother, and husband. And those mediums either pretended they were communicating or photographing Mary Todd's dead family, or they really did. Losing a loved one can be difficult, and the desire for communication one last time through a medium becomes intractably alluring because it is a last hope, no matter how slim the chances. For many, it's at least worth a try. So, suddenly, all of the deception can be seen as cathartic, a subtle and consensual dance that can't quite be looked at too directly by either party. The important thing is that a living soul needs closure or guidance, and it is up to another living person to be both ambiguous and direct enough to give it. Just as with Disney, Santa, and magic, spiritualism requires that synaptic leap of faith that one's spiritualist experience is not a deception. When people are emotionally hurting over the loss of a loved one, they are vulnerable and susceptible to anything that claims to heal. And what greater hope does someone have than when someone claims that they can reconnect them with that person they deeply miss and love? Even if it's not real, one is compelled to believe in it anyway because, for the briefest of moments, one can feel whole again. And what grief-stricken person 
wouldn't find the allure in that. Thank you for listening to this episode of No Character Limit. Every episode, the sources that I used are located in the description if you would like to check them out. In addition, please consider liking, rating, and reviewing if you enjoyed this podcast as each one goes to help further the reach of this podcast for new people to hear. Each episode requires hours in research, writing, recording, and editing. So if you feel that what you just heard is worth a donation of any size, please go to the description and follow the links for that. Each donation comes with a free PDF copy of a writing piece of your choice, no matter the size of your donation, and you get a lot of extra features with that, including a lot of the artwork and graphs and pictures, as well as the descriptions that I don't include in the podcast. If you would like updates for new episodes, you can follow No Character Limit at mastodon.world. And finally, if you have a question, comment, or even a correction, please feel free to reach out at nocharacterlimit at protonmail.com. Thank you again for listening.